Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. The Telegraph, the Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the front lines. Speak about daily life in Russia after more than a year of the full scale invasion. And, with foreign correspondent James Kilmer, we do a deep dive into the Central Asian states and their shifting diplomatic stances towards Ukraine, Russia and China. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 1st of March, one year and five days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and foreign correspondent, James Kilmer. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Sure. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. So, Bakhmut. Let's go back to Bakhmut. Um, head of Ukraine's land forces said that more troops are going to be sent there, more Ukrainian troops sent there. So, Colonel General Alexander Sersky, we've been speaking about him all, all week. He visited there last week um, and said that they're going, to, they're going to reinforce. The Ukrainian military put out a statement this morning saying, quote, the enemy continues to advance in the direction of Bakhmut. He does not stop storming the city, uh, end of quote. Now, we know this has become symbolic for Russia. I mean, Bakhmut is is largely pulverized. We think there are about four and a half thousand civilians still living there. That's according to well, CNN reported that yesterday. Uh, but there's it, there's not a lot not a lot there. It doesn't do much. It doesn't go anywhere. It's not a rail hub, a logistics base. It's not a big thing. It just seems to have been seized upon by Russia as as something that it could try and get hold of. But it's not it's not completely encircled yet. In his uh, video address last night, President Zelensky said, uh, quote, Russia in general takes no account of people and sends them in constant waves against our positions. The intensity of the fighting is only increasing. And CNN were reporting uh, an interview with Ukraine's economic advisor, Alexander Rodnyansky, who said, now interestingly, he said, now he's the economics advisor, but, you know, senior, senior advisor. But he said, quote, our military is obviously going to weigh all of the options. So far, they've held the city, but if need be, they will strategically pull back because we're not going to sacrifice all of our people just for nothing. If we were to pull back, that wouldn't necessarily mean the Russians would be able to advance very quickly afterward. Make no mistake, our counteroffensives will be around the corner soon, end of quote. A military spokesperson for Ukraine said today that there is no decision now, there is no such decision now, quote, to withdraw from the uh, from Bakhmut. 
We've spoken about this. I mean, it has cost Russia a huge amount in, in personnel. It's basically broken the Wagner group as well. And that might have led to all the, the political shenanigans we've seen between Prigozhin and Shoigu and Kadyrov and all that kind of stuff. So it's been hugely costly for Russia. Um, Ukraine have held the line at, at cost to themselves. Again, very difficult to put numbers on it, but we know it has been at significant cost to them. But they are obviously calculating that it's still in their interest to um, to stay there because of the, the effect they're having at writing down Russian capability. So I don't think we should take Mr. Rodnyansky's comments there as a as a you know, to herald some sort of withdrawal anytime soon. But it, it is entirely entirely possible. Militaries don't like going backwards, obviously, but sometimes that is that is the sensible thing to do. So we'll continue to watch that. Separately, um, UK Defence Intelligence today suggesting that there's a new Russian drone launch site. Uh, we're using the word drone. The UK Defence Intelligence say. One way, one way attack uncrewed aerial vehicles, but you know, for shorthand, let's call it a drone, and I might even have to say kamikaze as well. But you know what I'm talking about. Um, now, UK defence intelligence saying that Russian forces likely using um, using a site in uh, Bryansk Oblast. Now, this is the area of Russia directly north of the centre of, of Ukraine. It's sort of southeast of Belarus. It's 200 k's ish northeast of Kiev. Um, and a lot of the drones from the other night were uh, seem to be coming from that direction. Now, previously, the only other observed launch site since around uh, mid-December last year was from Krasnodar, which is across the Sea of Azov. So, you know, go over the Kirsch Bridge, mind, mind the gaps, uh, go over the bridge and keep going that way. Keep going east, that's Krasnodar. Um, and on Monday, you'll remember, Monday this week, Ukraine said it had shot down 12 of 14 uh, Shahid 136 drones that were fired overnight on sun- Sunday night, Monday morning. Nine of them were in, in the Kiev region, three in the Chernihiv region. Now, Chernihiv is between Kiev and that border area uh, with Bryansk Oblast. So that sort of suggests that that's where these things are coming from now. But interestingly, the, the previous attack was about a fortnight before. The big sort of the, the big drone strike was was a fortnight before that, which UK defence intelligence is saying likely indicates that Russia has run down its current stock and will likely need uh, and seek a resupply. So we're seeing these strikes, the drone strikes and the the long range missile strikes, the pause in between them getting bigger and bigger. And that that is because it doesn't seem to be working as a tactic. It's not wiping out Ukraine's national infrastructure. There is as we've spoken of before, there are, are many areas have found ways to mitigate um, the power issues and the water issues. Um, it's not broken the will of the people to demand a change from their political leadership. So as a, as a, as a tactic, as a strategy, if you like, it's not really worked. And all it's doing is, is writing down Russia's capability in this area, their drones that they're, they're getting from Iran and, the, um, and their long-range precision missiles. So, you know, that's why we're seeing the gaps get bigger and bigger and bigger between these uh, between these waves. It feeds into, of course, the, the the current idea of of where is China on the issue of supplying lethal military aid to uh, to Ukraine? Would they go as far as to well, first of all, supply it, and secondly, would it be, would it be drones? Because that would be um, significant. But um, that's that's the update for now. I'll take a pause. Thanks, Tom. Just a quick question from me in in our notes. Uh, We've got the um, British Intelligence Ministry of Defence saying a second launch site would give the Russians a different axis of attack closer to Kiev. This is to do with the drones that you mentioned. Um, I was just wondering, again, a sort of slightly dumb civilian question, but don't you just turn your defences to point the other 
to point towards the threat is coming from? I mean, what's the what's the is there a huge military advantage in this for Russia? Well, I mean, there's a there's military advantage in having a number of different sites, you know, spread your spread your goodies around so they can't all be wiped out. Um, keeps the other side guessing. We know that Ukraine have had to keep, we think, about a brigade's worth of, of troops in the north of the country just in case. You know, you can never say never uh, along that border with Belarus. You've got to keep something there. The same as down south. Early in the war, remember, we used to see ships, Russian ships, sort of near Odessa. And uh, there's the talk of, well, is there going to be an amphibious landing? And, of course, it, it ties down Ukrainian forces because you just can't. Well, you're, you're, you're a bold commander if you say it will never happen. I can take those troops and use them elsewhere. So... Spreading it around like this, there's there's many many reasons why why it would be a good thing. Number one being that Ukraine is just a bloody enormous great country, and firing from Krasnodar, you cannot reach some of the areas you might want to with these things. Um, but also, it it um, spreads your spreads your capabilities, so you're less likely to have them wiped out, and keeps the enemy guessing and keeps the enemy forces tied down because they have to have have to have something up there. So maybe what Russia's trying to do is to, is to get Ukraine to spread its vital and valuable air defence assets even more thinly um, across, the, across the entire country. Thanks, Tom. Francis, can I come to you? There's been quite a number of political and diplomatic updates. Would you talk us through them? Thanks, David. It feels at the moment there, there is every day quite a lot to cover. I'll start with the news that foreign dignitaries are beginning to arrive in New Delhi for the start of the G20 meeting tomorrow. Every T20 member has, is sending some kind of representative to that. And we understand that Ukraine will, of course, be an important point of discussion. Indeed, India's foreign secretary has said as such, he's told reporters that it's equally important to focus on the impact of the Ukraine conflict on the world and the challenges it poses, as well as finding a solution. This We're also expecting Anthony Blinken, the US top diplomat, of course, uh, to be present there after his meetings yesterday uh, with the five ministers of the former Soviet republics in Central Asia. And I know James Kiln is going to talk a lot about that later on, so I won't cover that in detail. But suffice to say some significant things happening there, which I touched on yesterday. Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, is also expected to attend at New Delhi at the G20, but we don't expect Anthony Blinken and Sergei Lavrov to meet each other. The last time they did so, uh, I think uh, Sergei Lavrov walked out, which was back at the G20 meeting in Bali in July. So uh, I think we we can't necessarily expect there to be much movement, uh, much dialogue between between America, between the West and and, and Russia. But nonetheless, who knows, we might be surprised. Uh, In other news, some quite interesting developments relating to Belarus. So Alexander Lukashenko, as I spoke about yesterday, uh, has arrived in Beijing for his three-day state visit there. Of course, lots of uh, concern from some commentators about this sign that Belarus is becoming closer to China. And indeed, the remarks of President Lukashenko would speak to this. He said that today's meeting is taking place at a very difficult time, which calls for new and orthodox approaches and responsible political decision. He said that Belarus fully supports the initiative on international security that you've put forward, a.k.a. the... uh, 12-point peace plan, which we spoke about at length last week, which really isn't a very satisfying peace plan from the Ukrainian perspective or from the West perspective, but nonetheless, Belarus is backing it, which 
you know, does not come as any great surprise. So we'll, of course, be monitoring that over the next couple of days as well to see if there's any other interesting developments that come out from there. Uh, just moving forward closer to home, Finland. Finland's parliament has voted overwhelmingly in favour of joining NATO ahead of the ratifications from Hungary and Turkey. So they are waiting still from those. But as I say, unsurprisingly, Finland's parliament has overwhelmingly voted in favour of joining the defensive bloc. Hungary have had an interesting development this morning in that the president there, Katalin Novak, has urged politicians to ratify Finland and Sweden's entry into NATO as soon as possible as they begin debating the motions after months of the bills being stranded in the parliament, which of course we've talked about. Uh, she said it is a complex decision with serious consequences, so careful consideration is necessary. My position is clear cut. In the present situation, Sweden and Finland's accession to NATO is justified. I trust the NATO, the National Assembly, will make a wise decision as soon as possible. Now, this does mark a, a shift from where we were with regard to Hungary. Hungary were one of the stumbling blocks into this admission into NATO, but it would appear that they are now in the position of accepting Finland and Sweden, whether that's due to international pressure or whether that's them seeing that the ground perhaps is shifting and they don't want to be aligned with uh, more of the Russian side of the argument than, uh, than who knows, but nonetheless significant. Of course, the biggest stumbling block still remains Turkey, and Turkey, for all of the reasons we've talked about in the past, are still holding things up. And there's been a lot of speculation that the impact of the terrible earthquakes that we saw in, in Turkey a few weeks ago may lead to a shift in a more sympathetic direction towards uh, speeding up the ascension of, of Sweden and uh, and Finland to NATO. But we haven't really seen any signs of that yet. But uh, when we do, of course, I will talk about it. And lastly, uh, just a, an interesting story I thought from within Russia. Putin has urged Russia's FSB security service, of course, the replacement for the KGP, uh, to step up its efforts to counter what it's described as growing espionage and sabotage operations against Russia by Ukraine and the West. He was speaking to FSB officials yesterday and he said and I'll quote that Western intelligence agencies have thrown additional personnel technological and other resources against us we have to respond accordingly and he said that the agency particularly had to focus on sabotage groups entering Russia from Ukraine and stepping up the production of key infrastructure and preventing attempts by Western security services to revive what he calls terrorist or extremist cells on Russian territory. So again, I think it's interesting this coming off the back of his speech last week, this idea, this narrative of, of traitors at home, infiltrators from abroad doing this harm, sowing destruction within Russia itself. It all plays into this broader existential threat that seems to be posed by the West. And Putin is trying to, for domestic audiences, the fact that we know about this and international audiences, it's serving dual purposes. To domestic audiences, of course, it's saying that there's a, a danger from the West, that we're fighting this kind of war against the West. And for the international audience, it's saying we know what you're up to, if indeed they are up to it. Although I, I don't doubt that there's been considerable investment in the intelligence services and research into Russia as a consequence of what's happened in Ukraine. So that's where we are, David, in the international sphere. But I know James Kion will have a lot to talk about in the central stance because there's been so much happening and it's fascinating stuff. Absolutely. Thank you, Francis. Well, James, it's really wonderful to have you back with us. Thank you so much for joining. Would you like to start there on this um, evolving story of, of American involvement and interest in the Central Asian states? Sure, David. Um, good to be back. 
So just to put it into context, Blinken arrives in Astana and Tashkent this week. And it's his first visit as Secretary of State, US Secretary of State to Central Asia since, since Biden took, to, took power two years ago, was inaugurated two years ago, which, which really highlights the importance of the timing and, and the context. And it comes just before the G20, it comes as the US increases its warnings that China is going to give lethal military aid to Russia or is considering giving lethal military aid to Russia. And as Lukashenko go, goes on a trip to Beijing, now, as, as I reported for the Telegraph at the weekend, Lukashenko, Belarusia is, is to a large extent of a Russian vassal state. And Lukashenko, on his foreign jaunts, often acts as an envoy for Putin. So I think, I think his visit to Beijing is, is incredibly important. He, he will be relaying messages directly from the Kremlin to Beijing. And, and, and it's in that context that um, Blinken turns up in, in Central Asia. Now, his message was clear to the Central Asian government. Uh, unsurprisingly, he was warning about Russian, the bad influence of Russia, how they need to be more Western-aligned, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it comes a year into this war and a year which really a surprising year for the Central Asian governments in that they... They took a far more soft stance on Russia's invasion of Ukraine than the Kremlin had expected. They basically distanced themselves from it. And we even had incredible sight, the Kazakh president, Tokayev, standing up to Putin at a conference in St. Petersburg last summer, Kyrgyzstan cancelling war games, which uh, the Kremlin was meant to, the Kremlin's armies were meant to be leading, etc. Uzbekistan putting, pushing away from joining the Kremlin's uh, economic unions, this sort of thing. And the reason, I think, and the reason, and, and it's, it's very nuanced and it hasn't really been discussed very, very openly in, in the mainstream media here, the reason I think that uh, Blinken has gone to Central Asia this week at exactly the same time that Lukashenko is in Beijing is because with the Chinese moving more towards the Kremlin, they are able to take the Central Asian states with them to a degree. Now, I, I say this to, to a degree because Central Asia is in, in the middle, it's, it's geographically, strategically very important. It is right in the middle of China, Russia, the Caspian Sea oil, uh, and Iran, and Afghanistan. And we've seen over the last year, as the Kremlin's influence has, has reduced, China's influence has increased. It already had huge economic and business in, influence over Central Asia. And it's been exerting and, and pushing more of this as the Kremlin appears weaker. Now, initially, we know that China was, was very unhappy with the Kremlin's invasion of, 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 of Ukraine. And we even had the site in Samarkand at a big regional conference, big regional summit of Putin, essentially apologising to Chinese President Xi for his invasion. Now, fast forward to where we are now, five months later, and that has changed. We got the top Chinese diplomat in Kremlin last week, got Lukashenko in Beijing this week, and now we've got Blinken in Central Asia uh, for the last two days as well. I think the White House and Washington are very worried that with China's increasing, increasingly likely shift behind the Kremlin, they will also bring... Central Asia states with them. And, and these states, they are important. Kansas, for example, supplies 
1% of uh, the West oil. It's, it's, it's the world's biggest uranium producer. It's, it's a huge transit area between the East and Europe, Caspian Sea oil linked with Iran and Afghanistan, etc. And it's also a region where the West has, in, in my opinion, rather naively neglected since withdrawing from the, the main withdrawal from Afghanistan, the main NATO withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think it was in 2014. It was all done through Uzbekistan. And at that time, there was huge interest in Central Asia. Since then, it's really come off. And that left a void for certainly China to exploit. And Russia already had very strong historical links there, obviously through the Soviet Union. And now we see this coming back to bite the West, I think. And Blinken's first trip to Central Asia in two years comes as China lines up behind the Kremlin and there's a G20 summit. I think there's a very, very big concern in the White House. Central Asia could be pulled back into Russia's orbit more succinctly. And then one, one, last, one last point. There has already been evidence of this in the last few weeks. I, I look at this region very closely when I'm not moonlighting for the um, Togos Moscow desk, I had a newspaper called the Central Asia and South Caucasus Bulletin. And we've been reporting how there have been an uptick in relatively large business deals between Russian companies and Central Asian companies in the last three or four weeks. I don't think this would have happened six months ago. Um, and we've also seen Kyrgyzstan agree to host a major war game. This is exactly the same war game that it cancelled last October, I think it was, called Invincible Brotherhood, which is a Russia-led security group war games. And it has agreed to host them yet when Armenia pulled out. Armenia pulled out for completely separate reasons, which won't go into now. But here we have Kyrgyzstan stepping up to the challenge of hosting these Kremlin war games, whereas only six months ago, five months ago, it encountered them. This is really fascinating, James. Thank you so much. These are fantastic, unique insights, I, th- I think. So, I mean, just to sort of relay that back to you in a sentence, you seem to be suggesting that the, the sheer economic and geopolitical gravity of China is, is, is directly impacting on the Asian states and their alignment just because of its sheer size. And just on that, I was wondering what you think the West, and in this case, Blinken and the Americans, what, what might they be saying to these states? What could they be possibly be offering to try and pull them back from the Chinese orbit? Essentially, yes. So I think the, the West has got an awful lot of ground to make up in Central Asia. There's just so much economic, financial and business influence that China can um, can really impose on its Central Asian allies through multiple different groups and unions that have been set up. Many, you know, the biggest, the biggest, most profile one is Shanghai Corporation Organization. It's a huge, huge sort of economic military unit which has been set up for I can't remember how many years, fifteen or so years, and is widened out to involve India and Pakistan, etc. But it's focused on Central Asia, and then there's many, many smaller ones. And again, we reported on one in my bulletin newspaper, reported on one last week, a new economic forum set up in China specifically for the Central Asian states. And, and it's, it's focused on infrastructure and road networks, etc. If Beijing sends a message to Central Asian government saying they have to toe the line more concretely with Kremlin, uh, with, 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 with what, its, what its views of the war in the Russia-Ukraine war are, then I think it'd be incredibly hard for them to say, no, we're not going to do this. The Kazakh government has already said it supports China's peace plan for Ukraine. 
which in itself is quite an important statement of step. So, so it, it's it's not. I mean, the, the Kazakhs have actually been the most outspoken towards Russia. Tokayev, the president, does speak to Zelensky. Uh, the Kazakhs have sent these yurts, these sort of yurt, a yurt is a, is a big, large, round felt tent, basically, which was carried by nomads and, and it's very warm, etc. And they've been using those in, in places like Bucha and Irpin and Kiev as these so-called points of invisibility where people can go warm up and charge their phones, etc. So it's quite visible. And, and the Kazakhs were very worried in summer that they might be invaded. There was lots of these nasty talking heads on Russian TV, promising to Kazakhstan, etc. North Kazakhstan is a huge or large Russian minority population, world's longest continuous land border, very, very sort of underwhelming army, etc. It would be, it'd be an easy ride. But that hasn't happened. I think fears of that have dissipated. So all this and China's shift gives Central Asian states a chance to sort of realign back slightly inside the Kremlin's orbit. The Kremlin needs Central Asia to boost its economy. It's relying on um, re-imports of consumer goods from Kazakhstan to end up in, in, in Russian shops, etc., all this sort of thing. That's just a small example. Uh, you can buy a, a, the latest iPhone in Moscow. And if you look at the, if you know what to look for, and you look at the serial numbers on the packaging, it will be the Kazakh serial number, and it should have stayed in Kazakhstan, but it gets re-imported to Russia, it's that sort of thing. So the economies are still very much interlinked with, with China's shift. That really does put extra pressure on the Central Asian governments to move in behind the Kremlin. As far as what the US can do, I think they're in. I, there's not many levers they can pull. They don't have any permanent military presence in the region. They, they, they've got some, obviously, some major oil pro- projects. I think Blinken promised a few million here, a few million there. On, on aid, etc. But they're also fighting fires. Um, to go back to Kyrgyzstan, for example, for one, one quick example, the, Kazakh, the Kyrgyz government wants to cancel the license of Radio Free Europe. This is a US-funded media organization because it, because it didn't like its reporting on, on some fighting between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan last year. So relations between the Central Asian states and the US are not particularly close at the moment. And I really think they have an awful lot of ground to make up. And Blinken, his trip will have gone some way to, to getting there. It's taken two years to come, and it comes at a very poignant moment. James, hi, it's Dom here. If I could just jump in with a question, please. I'm trying to wrap my head around the relative shifts in power here. You've spoken at length there about the possible decline or waning influence in in the US power or waning 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 influence in the in the region but China Russia I mean are the stands do the stands think that Russia is going to survive this war and be be the same maybe even more emboldened at the end of it therefore we need to get pally again with Putin or are they are they looking to China as a great economic powerhouse and um, and thinking about the, the future? It, the future is to the east, and I just wonder if China are looking at the stands as as markets in their own way, and and to to extend their political influence in the in the um, you know in the region, but also because I'm just wondering if China sees the relative decline of Russia and say, radio stands, you you come with us, and actually that is also a way of us China exerting leverage over over moscow to say look don't don't do anything with daft with the nukes don't do this don't do that or we won't let you play with our new friends in the stands am i am i massively overcomplicating everything and thinking 
just seeing links where there aren't. The, the Stones is a, is, a, is a competition very much between Russia and China for influence, but they also coexist. And the West um, was a much bigger player in the Stones and, and was much more able to shape which direction the Stones were going in the 1990s and in the early 2000s, and then sort of lost interest and, and got sort of distracted with its various wars in Afghanistan and um, Iraq. And the other, the other global was sort of relative regional powers, India, but they, they were also very behind the, the game. So, so we really left with China and, and, and Russia. And obviously, with the former Soviet Union um, and this generation of Central Asia leaders is still very much Soviet in their education and, the, and their links, so Tokayev, the, 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 the Kazakh president, etc. for example, he, he spent a lot of time in Moscow in school at the diplomatic university there, etc. There's an apartment there and, and uh, his son hangs out there, etc. So that, that, that's just one example. But so the, there is competition between China and, 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 and Russia in Central Asia, but it's the, they have the case there. So the big economic power is China. It's much bigger than Russia. And for example, I think China owns about a third of Kazakh oil and gas projects. It has done massive uranium deals with the Kazakh uh, uranium, state uranium company. All Turkmenistan's gas goes to China. Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan are hugely in debt to China. Chinese, cheap Chinese loans have rebuilt all the capital cities in, in the region. Where, what, what the Russians really have is they have a very strong linguistic, cultural, uh, educational hold over the region and, and also military hold and secret service hold. So it was the Kremlin which intervened in January last year when there were major protests on the streets of, of Kazakh cities. It was the Kremlin which got involved in 2020 when there was a coup in Kyrgyzstan and um, wanted to impose its own order. It's the, it's the Kremlin which really does the political manoeuvring on, on a sort of day-to-day basis, whereas the China sort of steps back a bit. But if China says, we need you to, to rethink things, or, or, or if China sort of creates atmosphere where it's more pro-Russia now than it previously was, then that will exert an influence on the Central Asian capitals, I think. And as we've seen in the last few weeks, China is rethinking its position towards Russia. And what we've been watching and observing in the bulletin is a slight tinkering of positions with business and these military war games in Central Asia. It's going to be very interesting to see over the next few weeks if there's more concrete changes in direction from Tashkent or Astana in particular. Um, as, as, as I was trying to say, like, the Kremlin really needs Central Asia on side. China is moving towards helping the Kremlin. If there is a stronger China-Russia, some sort of pact, unofficial or official pact, then the Central Asian states will find it incredibly hard not to be softer in their stance towards Russia. Francis here. Thank you, James, for your insights. I think these are really important and underreported. 
I was struck by Blinken's remarks yesterday regarding the importance of Kazakh sovereignty. And in this question of what America can offer the Central Asian states, it seems that it thinks that its political clout and influence on the world stage is something that is of value to these countries. But I just wondered, in your view, how appealing do you think that that message is? And just how likely is it that there may be some kind of escalation here that we could all be talking about in a, in a handful of months or years' time? Well, I think, I think concerns about invasion from Russia and Kazakhstan have dissipated. It was very acute last summer when I was near the border, a town called Urask or Oral. Um, this is before a million or 800,000 Russian men fled over the border in, in mid-September to avoid mobilization, or late, late September. Realistically, I'm, if, if there was a genuine threat from Russia to invade Kazakhstan, I'm not sure how much the US could do. As I said, that's a huge, huge land border uh, in North Kazakhstan with Russia. It's the longest continuous land border in the world. It's obviously very sparsely populated, a lot of the cities are full of ethnic Russians who may be very sympathetic towards Putin as well. The propaganda is very hard up there. And when I was there, there were, you know, one, one guy, one, one Kazakh guy may turn up with a black eye for an interview. And he'd had a fight with his brother-in-law, who was an ethnic Russian, about whether Putin was right to invade Ukraine or whatever. So it's very real. It's a very real fear there. The Russian security services are very entrenched in the Kazakh security services. There are, I think there's some missile testing. Russia has some missile testing sites in Kazakhstan and it has the, the Baikonur space station launch site in southern Kazakhstan. It has military, military bases in Kyrgyzstan and obviously it deployed paratroopers to Kazakhstan very quickly in January last year. China, we think, has a quite a large, relatively new military base in Tajikistan, near uh, Russia's. R- Russia's got a large military base in Tajikistan as well. So realistically, if Blinken's talking about protecting sovereignty, yes, I mean they could, maybe. I mean, I mean they, the the British Army does do training sessions with the Kazakh Army, that sort of thing. They can do more of that. I'm not sure whether they can do any mi- missile or. or weapons deals with Kazakhstan, most of that comes from Russia. Kazakhstan has, for example, a, a net defense pact treaty with, with Russia. They, they, they buy a lot of their equipment from Russia. I mean, realistically, I don't think there's too much that the US can do at this moment. It would take an incredible shift in something or other for the West to get back in there. It was a huge opportunity 10 years ago when the US were, did have an airbase outside Kyrgyzstan, outside Bishkek in Kyrgyzstan, where it was airlifting most of its hardware into Afghanistan from. But it gave up the base, just like that. And when it withdrew its kit in 2014, most of its kit in 2014 from Afghanistan, it went mainly by train and road through Uzbekistan. And again, there was maybe another opportunity missed to set up something more significant then. So... They're on the back foot, definitely. Well, thank you, Dom and Francis, for those questions. James, can we just move towards some of your reporting on Russia and the impact of the invasion a year on 
in Russia itself. On Monday, we spoke to our to our economics editor Su Chan, who gave us a bit of a, a, a read a read of the economic situation. You've written a very long piece about the impact of on daily life, with the caveat that, of course, I think you know our Ukrainian listeners probably won't have much sympathy, if any at all, for 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 the experience of ordinary Russians. It's of course important for us to talk about it to understand what what's happening in the country. What did you find when you were writing that piece? Okay, so I agree. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I didn't write the piece to to garner sympathy for Russians. I wrote it because it's important to report on the bigger picture. And and however this war ends, or wherever we are in, in the next year on from here, or next few few years, etc., the Russian people and the Russian state is going to play a major major role in that. And it's important to try and understand what what they're going through and what they're thinking as well. So 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 my aim was really just to to update people and to report. I also need to carry out this with two things. I don't particularly like uh, writing anniversary stories. I think that's a, a very dangerous thing for journalists to fall into. But on this occasion, there's been so little written about where, where Russians are at the moment that I agree with the editor that we needed a short, relatively forward-looking piece with fresh insight, etc., which can try and sum up and throw it forward a bit. The other caveat is that I haven't actually been given a, a Russian visa yet. So um, I used to live in Russia and I've got contacts there. So I had to do it through contacts, et cetera. And that is obviously limiting and very hard to report. So the, the, I'm, in, I'm in Riga at the moment. One of the reasons I'm in Riga is because you can talk to Russians here who are in and out of the country more easily. And you can also talk to Russians in Russia on various social media channels, etc. So you can still build up a picture. One, one, one of the really interesting things that I think came out of that story is the sort of two-speed two or two-tier society that has really been accentuated in Russia in the last year. Always, a, always a, a major part of Russian society is the difference between living somewhere like uh, Moscow or St. Petersburg or even sort of central Kazan, which is a t- city in, in central Russia, and out in the, in the sticks in Siberia, etc., they, they look so different, they feel so different. So people told me that central Russia, central Moscow rather, or central-ish Moscow, looks and feels pretty good. There's the, the, the shops are full of Western products, like I was saying, in Kazakhstan and Armenia do, do quite a large business in re-importing, which, which is, uh, as I was saying, they, they buy products for Kazakhstan and it ends up in Moscow shops. And so you can buy iPhones, you can buy designer clothes, et cetera, et cetera. And they also said that the, the prices of these products are not particularly high in Moscow and, and St. Petersburg because there's no taxes on it. So it's been sort of, it's been legitimized by the Russian state to help propel this, this feeling in central Moscow that the war is distant. Now, at the same time, that's at first glance. At the same time, if you dig in, you kind of you start to understand more about how it's touched ordinary people. So one, one of the people I can speak to in Moscow, is, uh, she's a nurse, and she was telling me how she'd been called up for battlefield training earlier this year. She hasn't been deployed, but she's absolutely uh, panic-stricken about that prospect. So here is an ordinary nurse in a hostel in, in, in Moscow, and suddenly she's told she's got to do battlefield training, potentially being sent sent down there. She's also very worried about the prospect of um, of these sort of hardened, battle-hardened Wagner mercenaries, often murderers, drug dealers, etc. Really, like, nasty, nasty 
people who have just done six months fighting a crazy war in Bakhmut turning up on the streets of Moscow after they've been given a pardon after six months. And then and then and then you roll further out of Moscow and you go down to the the central regions of of, of, of more sort of provincial Russia and you get a, you, you get a different story again where they're saying spoke to a guy who owns a, a shop selling uh, computer stuff and a guy in, uh, who works in construction. And they were saying that prices near where they live have all gone up and there are shortages of, of, of designer products and people are getting really anxious and mobilisation is undermining people's resolve and, and people are quarrelling and, and basic things like they can't go on a holiday and, and most people in these in these areas know someone who's been in the war, who's been injured, been been killed, etc. And the message that I was given by these people is that Russia is more divided, it's more fractious now than it has been for for a long time. And this is really um, a result of the Kremlin's version of Project Fear. So they have they they switched to Project Fear when when they called mobilization in September. Their original strategy, if you remember, the, for the propaganda was to tell everyone, oh, there's nothing to see here. This is just a special military operation. We're just rescuing Ukrainians from the terrible uh, embrace of NATO in the West. You guys can continue with the life. That didn't work, as, as we now know. And in September, Putin called for mobilization. And then since then, especially in the regions, but sort of more generally, although the veneer of, of normality is still in, in Moscow, since then, they've been ramping up the propaganda, saying we're under attack from NATO. Unless you tr- trust the Kremlin, unless you trust me, you're going to be overtaken by NATO and overrun. And that is causing huge problems, huge division, and huge rows within families and, and, and work colleagues. School children are being taught how to use rifles. Pensioners are, are doing stretcher bearer practice. Run society's changed, and it's it was just. Important, and I thought pertinent, that we, as the Telegraph, we're interested in, in the bigger picture, we put that out there and give our readers the wider perspective. I wasn't looking for particular sympathy from readers. It's just important to, to update them. Absolutely. Thank you, James. Was there anything that surprised you when you were talking to, to your contacts in Russia? Anything that you didn't expect to hear that you did? Well, I, I would say the um, so even among even among my contacts who are pro West, anti-Putin, anti-war, etc., there is a feeling that I picked up that they feel they'd been abandoned by the West. That the hypocrisy of the West around 2014 and around Navalny had really undermined the West's cause. So. You know, we all know that after 2014, lots of Western businesses continued to operate. Most Western businesses continued to operate in Russia. France sold tear gas to Russian police force, which then used it on on anti-Putin demonstrators, all this sort of stuff. And the, the sort of the, so the anti-Putin crowd that I was talking to, the half anti-Putin crowd, was saying that it was the softness of the West which is really to blame for this war. So there's that. It was an interesting insight. I'd, I'd heard it before. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying this is how they all feel at all, but, you know, that was definitely given over to me in, in quite a strong, strong way. There was also people who'd been to Moscow. There, there was also like a feeling that people weren't discussing the war, particularly in, in certain social circles, and it was happening elsewhere, and that the... The people, the people who committed the atrocities in Butcher were, were terrible uh, 
Tuvans or Buryatia. These are sort of ethnic minorities, Mongolian type ethnic minor- minorities. So they were trying to wash their hands of it. I, I completely disagree with that for, for the record. So there was a, there was a sort of a, a willful sort of dislocation, if you want. That's still very present in the in the Russian psyche, and is also quite terrifying because that has to change if if we're going to come to some resolution here. And again, the the sort of emphasis, even among the anti-Putin brigades, was we're very wor- worried about what's happening, going to happen to Russia. They they kept saying that more than more so than we're very worried or we're very upset what's happening in Ukraine. Well, thank you very much, James, for that insight. That was absolutely fascinating. And it's been really good to have you back on. Thank you so much for your time. Before we come to James's final thoughts, Francis, would you like to start? Thank you, David. And just ripping off what James was saying there, he was talking about the discrepancies between how different regions in Russia are experiencing this war. And that tallies too with the casualties, of course, in these respective regions. And there's been some interesting research that's been done and this has been sort of quite widely shared in the last 24 hours or so, this big sort of map of, of Russia with the regions marked in different shades, depending on how many people per capita have been casualties in Ukraine. And what is so interesting and perhaps unsurprising is that, of course, the ethnic minorities that are in certain parts of Russia, particularly in the east, have had a much higher uh, casualty rate per capita than those in, say, Moscow and St. Petersburg. Clearly, as we've talked about and reported in the past, there has been a deliberate policy of recruiting people, mobilising people from more rural, more poor areas that are not in danger of causing political instability in Moscow and St. Petersburg in the big urban centres. And we are seeing in data form and in map form just how major and how big those dis- those inconsistencies are and they are substantial so i would recommend that people do take a look at that as i say they'll it, it, it's all over um twitter at the moment it's been sourced by bbc news russia and media zone but i think also that what is interesting about this is, is clearly putin the, the the hierarchy trying to learn from previous mistakes if you look at russian history the urban centers are usually where revolutions stir and where the problems lie. If you look at, of course, in 1905, if you look at 1917, it's almost all of the attention, all of the violence and the threat to the then regimes, whether that be the Tsarist regime, whether that be, of course, the Bolsheviks, whether that be provisional government, it all comes from the urban centers. And so they are trying to stop there being the potentiality of unrest as a consequence of high casualty rates in these major cities because they know that if one looks at Russian history that that is a real danger for regimes. So uh, it's unsurprising but it is nonetheless I think significant and something that is no doubt having an influence on how this war is able to be having as little or impact seemingly in some of these major cities as as it currently is whether that be if you're looking at the amount of things that are in shops or whether you look at the the relative lack of anger that seems to be being stirred in these in these cities this is part of the reason why is that very fundamentally people are not fighting from those places in as high numbers and people are not dying in as high numbers in those places so that's that's me for today 
Thank you very much, Francis. James, can I just ask for your final thoughts? What will you be looking at in the next few days and weeks? And also, I mean, you mentioned the bulletin earlier. So if our listeners would like to follow your journalism elsewhere, what do they have to do? Where, they sh- where should they go? <laughs> That's very kind, David. Um, they just need to go to the bulletin.news and take it from there. They all need to get their wallet out. As far as what I'll be looking out for, it is definitely Lukashenko in Beijing. I think that is absolutely critical. I was really gobsmacked a couple of weeks ago when I was on the Moscow desk over the weekend and reports came from uh, the US. They'd been debriefed by Blinken, I think it was, saying that the US was was really was did think that China was thinking of sending lethal aid to Russia. I couldn't believe it. And as soon as I read that, I knew that that was the next major step. If that does happen, if Lukashenko gets some sort of deal this this week, uh, or, or even if there's a, a meeting set up between Xi and Putin in Moscow or, or wherever, I think that would change everyone's calculations. Central Asia is absolutely huge. And I think for the, the war in Ukraine, it's absolutely game changer as well. Thank you, Francis and James. Dom Nichols, would you like the very final thoughts for today? Yeah, thanks. I'd just like to mention that the reason I had to dash off yesterday was because I was invited to a, a chat with James Rubin, a um, uh, long-standing, very experienced U.S. diplomat. He was in the Clinton administration. He helped negotiate the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. So he's back now. He's um, U.S. Secretary uh, or State Department Special Envoy for the Global Engagement Center, which basically counters disinformation. And he he's calling for a counteroffensive against fake news. Uh, there will be an article uh, probably on our on our um, the pod, podcast page of The Telegraph rather than the foreign pages, so to have a look out for that. But James Rubin's calling for a counteroffensive and saying that President Biden and, and Anthony Blinken are really concerned that China's, what he described, alignment with Russia over fake news is near complete. And he said he was sort of saying that over, over Ukraine, they are just repeating and promulgating the same arguments. China's just, just amplifying what Russia is saying. He said that... that China is is not pushing back at all, just repeating these these suggestions that that the the war was started by NATO, started by the United States. There are bio labs all over all over Ukraine. And he said, uh, quote, nonsense claims are repeated by Russia and China. It's a full alignment in the disinformation space. And he said, we are in an information domain conflict. People didn't understand the dark side of the communication revolution. The Russians and the Chinese have managed to prevent the communications revolution from coming into their countries and instead have used it against us by poisoning the well around the world with this dis- disinformation. And he, he, was wor- he, he was warning of what would happen if we don't up our game here in the West. He said, Russia and China have a worldview that they are pushing. It's not just disinformation for disinformation's sake. It's not just manipulation for its own sake. They would like to change the way the world works. If this isn't done right, he says, if this isn't done right, the world could become an Orwellian nightmare. And I just thought that was really rather chilling and uh, and I, it deserved amplification, and I've I've written on it. There'll there'll be more to more to come. But yeah, James Rubin been in post for six weeks or so now. We've got a so there's a big hitter there, and and very much focused, saying the West need to catch up in this uh, in this information domain conflict, as he says, because Russia and China are well ahead of us. Ukraine: The Latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. 
You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And today on Twitter, Robbie Nichols. <laughs>